Well, good morning. Welcome to everybody who's joining us on site and those who are joining us online here this morning as well. Well, Christmas has started, and I just want to begin by saying a huge thank you to our decor team who spent hours and hours, like an army of people this past week, decorating the church. And so could you please join me in thanking them for the work that they've done? Absolutely. It absolutely adds to the Christmas experience we have here at West Meadows, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the entire month as many, many community groups and schools, uh, thousands of people, and starting next week, will start flooding through on a regular basis, and it adds to their experience as well. It's one of the ways that we can offer heartfelt hospitality to those in our community around us. So we uh, obviously have kicked off Christmas, but some of you may be like me, and you're thinking, wait a second, it's still November. Why are, we, why are we doing this in November? And obviously Christmas has come early this year. And so I'm curious though, because there are some people who are sort of holding back a little bit, but, but who has already started the Christmas music? Yep, okay, I'm with you on this one. Christmas music has started. I was the one who decided that was going to start in our house. Has anybody decorated their house yet? Yeah, okay, more than I thought. What about uh, Christmas sweaters? Yeah, I wore one last night, first one. Yeah, they may make an appearance in the weeks ahead. That's kind of a regular thing. We'll see what happens in the next few weeks here on Sunday mornings. What about Christmas movies? Uh, uh, Alicia, is, your hand has been up for every single one. <laughs> so, are, are you one of those Christmas in July, like the Hallmark Channel Christmas in July? <laughs> That's Trevor. That's right. That's right. It's true. Trevor starts that. He gets his big, his big warm, snuggly blanket and his cup of cocoa. And yeah, I'm like, dude, it's, it's July. What are you doing? Yeah, Christmas time. It's here. These are some of the things that we look forward to at Christmas time. The, the, the food and the music and the decorations. And if you ask kids, and even if you ask some, some adults, they'll also say that one of the things that they really, really look forward to are the presents, right? The presents. These, these parcels of love and thoughtfulness that are beautifully wrapped and presented to us during Christmas. It's, it's such a special part of the season. And, you know, I, I, I think we are never more like God when we are those who give genuinely from the heart. Because if you think about it, what did God give us during the Christmas season? He gave us, remember the themes of the season, there's, there's hope and peace and joy and love all wrapped up in the most precious gift ever given in Jesus Christ. And over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we're going to carefully unwrap his gifts. We're going to unwrap some of these gifts by looking at, for example, God's promises in Jesus that Jesus fulfills. We're going to be looking at the miraculous events that surround the arrival of Jesus. We're going to unwrap that for you. We're going to unwrap some of the traditions that form the celebrations that we all participate in each, 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 uh, each Christmas. And then ultimately, on the last Sunday before Christmas, we're going to zero in on the preeminent gift that forms our hope and forms our faith and our joy and our love, that being the gift of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Over the next couple weeks, there just might be a Christmas edition of Pastor 411. So... If you're interested in that, if you know what Pastor 411 is, because there are some questions around Christmas that we have never tackled, you can actually send your questions about any of the theological aspects of Christmas, any of the, the backgrounds or histories of Christmas traditions. You can email those to us. So email those questions to me at pastor411 at westmeadows.org, and I'll get those, and we'll see if we can include those and make sure we cover them in the weeks ahead. So we're going to be unwrapping these things for us over the next few weeks. Today, 
We want to start by unwrapping the promise of hope that was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, when we use that word fulfilled, that, that leads us to understand that, that at some point, somewhere along the way, there must have been a past promise, a, a past claim that was made that was brought to completion. That's, that's what it means to fulfill something. When somebody makes you a promise or they, they indicate that there's a claim of something you can, you can grasp in the future, there's this thing that happens where we hear the promise or we hear this claim made, we enter into a period of anticipation. We enter into a period of waiting and seeing how that's going to all play out. For example, if somebody makes you the promise of marriage, you enter into a season of waiting for that to come to fruition. If somebody offers you and promises you a raise at work, you wait for the date to come when you can actually receive that. If somebody promises you the last piece of pizza, you wait and see what's going to happen. And based upon what happens following that promise, will lead you to judge different aspects of their nature and of their character and of their love of pizza. And you'll determine, are they willing? Are they able to follow through on the promise that was made? When we think of this concept in a biblical manner, we enter into the realm of prophecy. These promises of divine inspiration that God gave to his people through the prophets. These, these prophecies that happen. And when we see what happens when God gives a prophecy, we enter into a period of waiting to see what will transpire following. Is God able? Is God willing to follow through on the words that he promised? And based upon what we see happening there, it reveals aspects of his nature. And reveals aspects of the question, can we trust him? And you know what we find in the accounts of Jesus' birth? Found in the Gospels of Matthew and found in the Gospels of Luke. You know what we find? We find that both of them have infused the fulfillment of prophecy into their stories. And I'm hoping that as we uncover this today, as we unwrap this today, we can add this to our experience of the Christmas story. And as we add the fulfillment of prophecy to our Christmas story, that it will build our confidence in the power, not only of this historical event, not only of the historical event that we focus upon during the Christmas season, but that it would also create within us a sense of wonder and amazement at our God who is able to ensure that none of his words ever fail. Amen? Amen. So in the Gospel of Matthew, how do we see this? Well, I want you to understand that when we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which is one of the two Gospels where we find aspects of the Christmas story, is that Matthew was primarily writing to a Jewish audience, to the, to the people of Israel. And these people knew two things. Number one, they knew their Old Testament scriptures really, really well. And because they knew them really well, they were heavily invested in prophecy. Prophecy that was arriving on the scene even as early as Genesis chapter 3, all the way up to Matthew chapter 1, we see that there is prophecies that are given, this promise of a Messiah, that one day that God would send a Messiah who they hoped for and they longed for and they looked towards for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, some people at Christmas, they have a hard time waiting a few weeks for Christmas. They have this period of anticipation and waiting, like, I know Christmas is coming, and I know there's an invitation to a party, and, and, and I know there's going to be wonderful f Christmas food there, and I know my friends and family are going to come, and, and there's this awesome music. Can I play the music yet? Is it too early? Can I do that? We go through these periods of waiting and anticipation for a few weeks. Some people can't help but like Trevor, and they start movies in July. But, you know, whether we're waiting for weeks or months, imagine the people of Israel who are not counting it in weeks, who are not counting it in months, they're not even counting it in years. They're counting their waiting in centuries. 
That's what Israel did. They waited for centuries. You see, when God spoke his last word through the prophet Malachi, he repeated this promise. In Malachi chapter 4, he says this. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and I will strike the land with total destruction. Yikes. It's quite the promise, isn't it? It's not a warm, fuzzy kind of feeling promise, but it is a promise nonetheless. It's a promise that one day God would send his messenger, and his messenger would herald the arrival of the Messiah, and the Messiah would bring that eternal shalom, that perfect peace that they had been longing to get back to since the Garden of Eden. Perfect peace and shalom between God and man, amongst all people, with victory over the enemies, of all their needs being met. This perfect peace that they were waiting for, that this messenger would herald the arrival of the Messiah who would bring that peace. And then after the prophet Malachi gives this word, they enter into 400 years of silence. 400 years where God did not say a word. That's how long they waited. From Malachi chapter 4 till Matthew chapter 1. 400 years they waited. And they held on to the promise in the silence with a song in their heart that said, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. We know that day will come when we will rejoice because Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. They waited. So in Matthew's gospel, written to the people of Israel primarily, these people who knew these promises, these people who are waiting and watching for the Messiah. Matthew quotes extensively prophecy throughout his telling of the story because he wants to prove to them the Messiah has come and that Messiah is Jesus the Christ. When we turn to the Gospel of Luke where we find other aspects of the Christmas story, we find that Luke was also guided by prophecy, but for a different purpose. You see, he wasn't writing primarily to the Israel nation, to the nation of Israel. Luke was primarily writing to Gentiles. Now, what, what is a Gentile? Basically, back in the biblical world, you can divide people into two categories. There's, there's the Jewish nation, and then there's everybody else, which would be the, the Gentiles. Primarily made up of Romans and Greeks, who were not aware of these prophecies, but they were still in need of a Messiah. And so by the time Luke writes his gospel to reveal the reality, the truth of Jesus, everyone had heard of Jesus. Everyone knew him. Everyone had heard stories about him. Some people had seen him. Some people had heard from him. Some people had been healed by him. These people, everyone knew about Jesus. But now they're left in a period of waiting, trying to think, well, how do I make sense of what I experienced? How do I make sense of what I was taught? How, how, How do I make sense of it all, and can I put my trust in it all? And so Luke does not directly quote the verses like Matthew does because his audience wasn't familiar with it. But he does include events that reveal God's ancestral promises coming to fulfillment. And he does so for a different purpose. He says this in the opening of his gospel in Luke chapter 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I too dedicated to writing an orderly account. Why? So that you may know with certainty the things that you've been taught. So those things you've been taught, you experienced, you know, you heard, you saw, you experienced with Jesus, I want you to know with certainty what those things mean that you can place your trust in. You see, instead of quoting Old Testament verses, 
you know, because his audience wouldn't understand them, kind of like us, we wouldn't have the same investment in them. Because we didn't have that, his audience didn't have that either. He grounds recent events in past promises, which lays a foundation for present confidence in who Jesus is. Showing us that the God of love and mercy who is able is not only able to speak, but he's able to do. He's able to act as well. And so the fulfillment of prophecy is not only to prove that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but it also gives us this confidence to stand in certainty that he is the long-awaited Messiah. In confidence that we can stand on that today still. So as we unwrap God's promises of Christmas, may it move us to the sense of confidence. May it move us also to this sense of praise of the God who not only spoke these ancient promises of eternal hope, but also was able to bring them all to fulfillment. Fulfillment in a baby boy who was wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger and given the name Jesus, which means he saves. Because he is the Messiah of all people. Now, Christmas, when we have Christmas sermons, they tend to kind of pick the story apart and focus on certain things. But, you know, in, in, the, in the 16 years that I've, I've been a pastor, I can't remember a time that I or any of the pastors I served under actually took a Sunday and just went through the whole story in one sitting. Maybe you can think of a time that's happened, but usually things get picked apart, and over the course of the Christmas season, we cover the whole story. But very rarely do we actually have one service that's dedicated to that. And so what I want to do with the balance of time we have today is I think the best way that we can experience the prophecy, we can experience just how much prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, is by walking through the story. Walking through the whole story to kick off our Christmas season. And so, it, it, you know, if I had popcorn, I'd give you some popcorn. You could sit back and just kind of enjoy the story a little bit. Uh, but I want to walk you through it and highlight for you as we go just how much prophecy was foretold and fulfilled in the story of Christmas. So let's do that. But our story actually doesn't begin with Jesus. Our story begins with a priest named Zechariah who's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And both of these are devout, righteous people who love the Lord, are holding to his promises. But God has not blessed them with a child in their lives. Now, Zechariah, being one of the, a faithful priest in the temple, does his regular duty and serves on a regular basis. And, and a time comes up when finally the lot is cast that he gets to go offer incenses in the most holy parts of the temple. You know, and he's been faithfully serving God for all of these years. Even though God has not spoken, even though God has been silent and not revealed himself for hundreds of years, he continues to faithfully serve. And as he walks in to offer incense in the temple this one time, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. And as the angel unpacks what he means by your prayers have been answered, it's almost as though God picked up where he left off in Malachi 4 where he says this. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call him John. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel picks up right where God left off 400 years earlier by quoting the words of the prophet Malachi. 
Now, as you can imagine, this is an amazing scene, amazing sight for Zechariah to behold and to take in. And the news is too wonderful for him to believe. And so he, he, he doubts the words. And, and the angel says, it will come to pass. But because you doubted, you'll not be able to speak until the fulfillment of this word. And, and as, as, as Zechariah emerges from the inner parts of the temple, he, he cannot speak. But he communicates that what's happened. And sure enough, it comes to pass that his wife Elizabeth is found to be with child. Well, a few months later... The angel Gabriel makes another appearance, this time to a young woman named Mary, who is pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. And she's startled at first by the greeting of this angel appearing in her room, but the angel says, Do not fear, for Mary, you have found favor with God, and you will conceive and you will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Then in Luke 1, beginning in verse 32, the angel continues to unpack what this means when the angel says, He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. A proclamation that is amazing in itself, but then Mary knows and points back, and she knows that this is a powerful, loaded declaration that, that repeats prophecies that are found in the book of Genesis and the book of Numbers about the Messiah coming from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knows that there was a promise made to King David in 2 Samuel and Jeremiah 23 where it's repeated that the Messiah will sit on the throne of David and that kingdom will never end. And as she processes this, she's shaken by it and she's somewhat confused and says, how is this possible? And the angel says it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will conceive this son. And because it is by the Holy Spirit, he will be called the Son of God. Gabriel then shares with her the news that her aunt Elizabeth is also with child. And says, Mary, you see, no word from God is too hard. No word from God will ever fail. And her humble response to all of this, her humble response to all of this is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you've said. And so Mary hurries off to go celebrate and visit her Aunt Elizabeth. Meanwhile, Joseph hears the news and begins trying to process it all. Because that's a lot to take in. He's pledged to be married to this young lady who he learns is with child. And he knows he hasn't done anything. So as he processes this and he feels a sense of betrayal and a sense of, of being disheartened, he says, you know, I, I care for her deeply, but I cannot marry her. So I'll divorce her quietly. I don't want to cause her any more undue hardship. I'll, I'll just divorce her quietly. And as he starts to make plans to do so, again, the angel Gabriel makes an appearance to him in a dream. And Gabriel says to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And when you read this in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew makes special point at this part of the story to remind his audience, to remind us of the prophecy given in Isaiah 9 that said the virgin will conceive, and she'll give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel told him. And he took Mary into his home as his wife. Well, the time came for Elizabeth and Zechariah to have their son, and they named him John. And as they named him John, Zechariah's voice returns, and, and he rejoices and celebrates, not just at the return of his voice that he hasn't had for months, but at the fact that the word of the angel came true, and they have their son.
And as he speaks words of rejoicing, he does through by quoting prophecies of Jeremiah and Micah and Malachi and Isaiah over top of his son, prophecies that would come to pass in his son John, who would become John the Baptist, as Zechariah says this, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. My child, Zechariah says, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and he will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. For people to come to know salvation through him. And in years to come, John the Baptist would be that voice in the wilderness who would prepare the way for the Lord as Jesus would enter into his ministry. Well, a few months after the birth of of John, Caesar Augustus decided that there needed to be a census taken. And this was disruptive to the entire nation because it required everyone to return to their hometowns. And so Joseph packed up his wife, who was nine months pregnant at this time, and they traveled to Bethlehem because Joseph was from the line of David, and David was born in Bethlehem, and everyone had to return back to their ancestral cities. And so as they traveled to Bethlehem, there's chaos and crowds everywhere in the city, and as they get there around the time that Mary was due to deliver, we find that this was actually foretold by the prophet Micah, who said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And sure enough, the time came to pass when the child was born, but they could find no guest room to stay anywhere. And so Joseph did the best he could. He found the best he could, and it was, it was a, a cave or a stable of some sort where Mary gave birth to a son. And she wrapped him in claws, and she placed him in a manger. Now during this time nearby, there were shepherds watching in the field watching their sheeps in the field by night. And, and the angel, busy angel this time of season, arrives in the fields and illuminates the entire night sky. And in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, the angel says, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will bring incredible joy to all people. Because today in the town of David, in Bethlehem, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the one people have been waiting for. He is the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger of all places. And after this pronouncement was made, suddenly uh, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and declaring glory to God in the highest. In heaven and on earth, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. And then the angels left. And the shepherds hurried off to Bethlehem where they found the child. And they worshipped him, and they praised God, and they went out and they told everybody they could about what had happened. And didn't you know that the psalmist actually wrote about this? The psalmist predicted that when the Messiah comes, that those who dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. And following this, a few days later, in keeping with customs, on the eighth day, Mary and Joseph gave their son the name Jesus, as they've been told to do. And then a few days later, on the 40th day, according to customs, they went to the temple. And they were going to the temple to to go through the purification rites and to offer sacrifices because this was the firstborn son. And they needed to give an offering of a sacrifice of thanksgiving for this child. And as they come to the temple, they encounter a man named Simeon. And Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that, that he would not die until his eyes cast upon the Messiah. And when he saw Jesus, he, he, he took the baby in his arms and he praised God, quoting the words of Isaiah by saying, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. 
and following this blessing, following the sacrifices at the temple, Mary and Joseph then returned to Nazareth where they began their life as a new family. Now some time passed after they were in Nazareth and establishing their, their new home as a young family. And during this time, some magi from the east came to Jerusalem looking for a king. So, of course, they went to the palace where they found King Herod. And they asked King Herod, where is the one born the king of the Jews? Now, now to ask a king where another king has been born can be a very threatening thing. And so this disturbed King Herod. And so he went and asked his priest, where has it been foretold that this child, that this king would one day be born? And the priest checked the prophecies, and the prophecies from the book of Micah, from the words of Micah, said, well, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So Herod goes back to the Magi, and in a bit of a scheming manner, says, you know, go find him in Bethlehem. And when you do, let me know so that I, too, may go and, go and worship him as well. Well, as the Magi leave, the star leads them instead to the home of Mary and Joseph. And when they find Mary and Joseph and the child... They come before him and they kneel and they bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. As prophesied by the prophet Isaiah and also repeated by the psalmist when it said, kings will come and pay tribute to him. Kings will present gifts to him when he has arrived. And as they prepared to ride home back where they came from the east, an angel appeared to them again and warned them not to go back to Herod. And so they chose a different route to go home. Now, a short time later, Herod realized that they hadn't come back and that he had been outwitted, and he was furious that this took place. And he still felt the threat of this baby king he had heard of, and so he decides that he will deal with it by another way. And this is the part of the story where we're reminded that not all prophecy is happy. Not all prophecy is happy because it was foretold by Jeremiah that there would come a time when there would be weeping and great mourning heard throughout Israel as Rachel would refuse to be comforted. And sure enough, Herod's edict of ordering all of the boys under the age of two to be killed is sent forth, and there's great weeping and mourning throughout the region. But again, the angel arrives to protect the family and tells Joseph in a dream to, to, to move his family to Egypt for a time for safety, quoting the words of Hosea, who said that they will dwell in Egypt, escape to Egypt. And there they lived and stayed until Herod died and the angel then again appeared to them and told them it was now safe to return back to Nazareth. And then Jesus, raised under the care and the protection of his earthly parents Mary and Joseph, was raised in their home in the city of Nazareth. Which wouldn't you know it, also according to the psalmist and to the prophet Isaiah, is where the Messiah would come from. And in the words, the prophetic words of Charles Schwartz, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> the Christmas story. But see, the Christmas story isn't just about good feelings and holiday celebrations and these sorts of things. See, the Christmas story is really about a God who made a promise to his people long ago that he would send a Messiah into this world to save all people. That he would send a Messiah who would give hope to all people. And the God who is delivering on those promises centuries after they were made at a place and at a moment of his choosing, through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And, and, I, and I honestly believe that in, in this post-Christian world and society in which we live today, that this story, this story peppered with prophecy, this story revealing events that were promised and fulfilled is more important than ever because it shows the facts of the gospel and the facts of Jesus are true and that they matter. 
Now, I, sometimes we talk about prophecy. Some people say, they, you know, well, didn't just the author write this after the fact? Didn't he just selectively grab bits and pieces and change some of the details to fit the story? Isn't, isn't that actually what happened? No. It's not true. It's common to hear, but it's not true. And how do we know it's not true? There's a few reasons. Number one, probably most profoundly, is because the prophecies, the documents we have with the prophecies written on them are older than the story itself. These predictions about who the Messiah would be, where he would be born, how this would all transpire, came hundreds, if not a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Okay, but... Uh, but some parts may have been manipulated to kind of fit, right? Again, I would ask, how? Who gets to choose the place of their birth? Who gets to choose the line, the family that they're born into? There are things that are beyond our ability to control that exist within the fulfillment of prophecy. And add to that the sheer number of prophecies that are fulfilled. It would be impossible to manipulate all of that to make it fit a manufactured story. You see, in the birth narrative alone found in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, there, there are a minimum, at a core, 19 prophecies that are centuries old. A minimum of 19 core prophecies fulfilled in the birth and the arrival of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But by the time Jesus would breathe his last breath upon the cross, he would have fulfilled over 350 prophecies. I'm not sure how you manufacture that. The fulfillment of over 350 prophecies by the time he would breathe his last breath. What does all this mean? It means that we have reason to have confidence in the God of the Bible. That we have confidence in the Christmas story. It means we have reason to stand on certainty in who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah of God. You see, because God has always spoken and he's always acted through real history, through, through real actual events, through real people. We're not speaking here about, the, about a God of myth and a God of legend. We're talking about a God who has done wondrous things. And none more so wonderful than the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It is no wonder that the heavenly choir appeared that night and echoed the prophecies and declaration that we bring you good news that should cause great joy for all people. Because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those upon whom his favor rests. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your movement in fulfilling your word particularly in the past of this, the events of this Christmas story, Lord. May, may, it, may it just fall afresh upon us again today as we enter into the season, just a reminder of the reason for the season, this preeminent gift that you've given to us. We thank you for that, Lord. And, and I also pray, God, that it would give us confidence to understand that today you are still present and still working and still moving and speaking. And may we have confidence to stand firmly fixed upon you and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in these days as well. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we declare to be your Son and our Savior. Amen.